Alright, let's get out chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, you are more than welcome to pick up a black hardback, maybe underneath a seat around you. We'll be in Daniel chapter 2 this morning. Uh, my name is Mike Skinner. I'm the lead pastor here at the church. Uh, glad that you have joined us this morning for worship. Um, we're in the middle of a series on the book of Daniel. Uh, but the good news is Daniel, the way it works, is you can kind of pick it up at any kind of part. It's all kind of a self-contained unit, and so you'll be able to kind of make sense of it. Well, in Daniel 2, uh, and we'll uh, pick up where we left off last week in Daniel 2. Quick announcement as we get started. Uh, we will have our second elephant in the room tomorrow night, okay? So if you join us for our first one, uh, last Monday we talked about creation and evolution and how Christians should responsibly read Genesis 1 and kind of the, the different ways Christians have read Genesis and um, kind of just, you know, the, the whole intersection relationship of science and faith and then reading text, uh, ancient texts responsibly. And so it was a good time. Uh, we'll meet again for our second elephant in the room uh, tomorrow night, 7.30, right here in the sanctuary. We'll be doing... Uh, the role of women, okay? So uh, it says place of women in Christianity. Don't get that confused. We're not putting women in their place, okay? That would be misinterpreting it. Uh, but um, in particular, the, the two kind of spheres of church and then home, okay? And so Christians have differed on how to understand um, how are women able to serve in the church. Um, there are, uh, there's a large tradition that I've said certain roles in the church are withheld from women. Uh, and then also at the home, okay? What's the, the kind of relationship between husband and wife, um, as they raise their kids and as they make decisions of their household, things like that. So if you're interested in those kind of topics, if you have opinions or questions or anything like that, come hang out with us. It'll be tomorrow night at 730. Uh, we'll uh, go back and forth with a couple different viewpoints and then open it up for a big kind of discussion Q&A time. Uh, so I think it'll be worth your time if you join us tomorrow night at 730. Okay, so for our Daniel series, we're working with this idea that you and I are resident aliens. Okay, we're this kind of outpost, this kind of colony, this, this group of people who exist in a world that doesn't believe what they believe and doesn't think like they think and doesn't act like they act and that is often full of temptations and pitfalls and distractions. And so that um, when you and I go out in, in our weeks and we are at work and at home and, and out and playing in recreational places, there, there's all these different voices and tugs at us that sometimes cause us to not follow Christ the way that we're supposed to follow Christ. Uh, and to not be as faithful as we're uh, called to, to be. Um, and so Daniel provides the perfect kind of book for us because Daniel is all about uh, this, this Israelite and his friends, Daniel and his friends, and they are in exile historically, I mean physically in exile, in the nation of Babylon. Uh, so Babylon's this kind of evil empire that comes and conquers God's people, and they take some of the Israelites and they bring them to Babylon. And so you have Daniel and his friends, and they're trying to figure out how they can stay faithful to their God while they're living in Babylon, while they're living in a foreign land. And, and we've talked about how this is maybe the perfect metaphor for us uh, to understand our identity and our uh, role as Christians here today now in kind of the context that we find ourselves in. Um, again, where we're surrounded by what we see um, in the news and on TV and in the media and just with the relationships we have out in the world, um, we're, we're meeting all kinds of different temptations and different pitfalls and different distractions and things that might keep us away from following Christ the way that, that we're supposed to follow Christ. And so Babylon for us has become a sort of metaphor, a sort of way of identifying a, a culture and, and um, environment around us that's not always uh, conducive to, to our faith, conducive to you and I following and knowing Christ the way that we've been called to follow and know him. Um, this is a biblical metaphor. So in the New Testament, the authors often talk about Babylon as Rome, um, whatever kind of reigning empire there is, and God's people are exiles, they're sojourners. First Peter says, in that world. And so we're trying to think of how you and I can be faithful 
when we're surrounded by temptations and pitfalls and things like that. So let me catch you up on Daniel 2 and we'll dive in. We're going to pick up in the middle of Daniel uh, in verse 31. You remember from Daniel 2, uh, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a dream. And he wants to interpret the dream. Uh, and he wants his wise men to tell him what the dream was and what the interpretation was. They can't do it. So the king gets really upset. You remember this? Uh, and the king decides to kill everybody. Okay, kill all the wise men. Daniel and his friends find out about it. They say, hold on, let us have a shot at it. Okay, they go pray to their God, the God of Israel. He reveals the mystery and a vision to Daniel. Uh, and Daniel goes to the king, says, hey, I've got the dream. I've got the interpretation. We read that part, and then we skip to the end where the king's real happy. And the king says, truly, your God is the God of gods and the king of kings. The, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, ends up giving glory to Daniel's God because of what Daniel's able to accomplish. Well, we skipped over the actual dream and the interpretation, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. You remember in Daniel, there are two kinds of material we'll find. There are stories, narratives, and there are apocalyptic visions. So this kind of end-time stuff, these kind of weird, um, out-of-the-ordinary kind of visions about the future and about history and about big world events, those kind of things. Um, most of those visions are in the second half of the book. And the first half of the book is mostly story. But in Daniel 2, you kind of get a taste of the visions that will come later on in Daniel. Uh, so consider this a preview of coming attractions, okay, as we look at this dream here in Daniel chapter 2. So this is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and then the interpretation uh, that Daniel gives as well. So Daniel, in verse 31, is talking to the king. Uh, he's been brought into the king uh, to try to save the day, uh, get the wise men off the hook, and to uh, bless Nebuchadnezzar. So here we go. Verse 31, this is uh, Daniel talking to the king. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So, so there's the statue, okay, that Nebuchadnezzar has in this dream, and Daniel's going to describe the statue. Now, as we read, try to imagine it in your mind, okay? I'm really bad at this. I'm, I'm, I'm a word person, so I focus on the words and the grammar and the syntax. Um, and I have to really try to, it's a concerted effort for me to imagine, like paint a picture in my mind as we read. But try to do that as we, we read through this and, and kind of see the statue in front of you. The head of the image was of fine gold, its chest and its arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. So as you go down the statue, this big kind of frightening, um, uh, overwhelming statue, there's different materials, four main kind of materials it's made of. And then with the feet, you kind of get separated out into feet and clay. Um, and now the vision is going to go from a picture to like a story or a movie in verse 34. As you looked, as you're dreaming, a stone was cut out by no human hand. Again, I don't know how you would imagine that, okay? But you've got rock and a stone's being cut out, but there's no hands involved. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So you have this big, kind of overwhelming, again, uh, intimidating statue. Uh, this stone comes out of nowhere, hits it in the feet, and it crumbles. And not only does it just kind of crumble, but it turns to dust. It's like chaff. It's blown away. It's become weightless. It's, it's gone. And then the stone turns into a mountain that grows and grows and grows until it fills the whole earth. Now, I've got to imagine Daniel, as he's telling to, this king, to the king, is a little worried, okay? Uh, There's a step of faith. You remember the king wants the interpreters to tell him what the actual dream was. 
So Daniel, right, is just trusting that this is exactly what Nebuchadnezzar dreamt. It's kind of weird. It's kind of specific, right? Um, I mean, I can imagine if it was me, I'd be worried. I'd lay out this, like, fancy image, right, for the king. And be like, no, that's not what it was. It was about a dog and a pony. Okay, where's the statue coming from? But Daniel says, okay, I guess this is what you dreamt. Um, and here it is. Here's the vision. Here's the statue that you saw with the stone coming in. I'm blowing it all up, and then that stone becoming a mountain that replaces it. And Nebuchadnezzar goes, that was the dream. Tell me what it means now. Tell me what it means. Now, a lot of artists have tried to kind of render a picture of uh, what the statue would look like. We, we can throw it up there. This is my favorite uh, that I found. You'll see the head of gold. Um, you'll see the, uh, he's kind of ripped in this picture, okay, like a 300 kind of guy. And then the, uh, the stone is kind of flaming coming towards feet, and it's going to come and, and destroy it, and then again the mountain uh, will turn and, and will kind of fill the whole earth. Um, so this is the dream. This is the dream that Nebuchadnezzar has, um, and then we're going to get the interpretation of the dream from Daniel uh, as he tells the king what is happening here with this stone that comes in. So verse 36, read with me. Daniel 2, verse 36. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Now I want to read this again, and I want you to kind of put on your biblical imaginations, okay? And try to think of where does this, where does this text, where does this phrase sound like it comes from? Where does this echo here, okay? Into your hand... Wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all. You might think this sounds an awful lot like Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, when God creates humankind, the Imago Dei, the image of God. We read it at the elephant in the room uh, last Monday. And he says, humans, humankind, I'm giving you dominion over the world over the beasts of the earth and the birds of the air. Um, you have here kind of this echo to Genesis 1, the role given to humans has now been taken up by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, he's now ruling the world. And as we'll see, the way he's ruling the world is not the way God intends the world to be ruled. His kind of empire, his kind of dominion. Um, Babylon is this lush, high civilization, kind of the height of wealth and luxury uh, art at the time. You'll remember that, if you know anything about kind of ancient history, the, have you ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? Um, they had these real famous Hanging Gardens. It was kind of this... Uh, one of the big wonders of the world at the time. And, and there's all this kind of technology and, and art and sophistication and wealth that goes along with Babylon, with their civilization. But at the same time, there's this underside, there's this belly, there's this back door full of violence and coercion and disobedience and poverty and abuse. And, and this is not the way the world is supposed to be run. The world that was given to humankind said, you have steward over this. But perhaps a human will come who will run it the correct way. And perhaps that's what the vision will eventually get us to. But he introduces us, you're the head of gold, Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Babylon, your kingdom, y'all are the ones, you are the one who's ruling over the world as it is right now. He goes on. He says this, verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, verse 40, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. So this fourth kingdom is powerful, it's, it's brutal. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. So these four different parts of the statue apparently represent four different kingdoms 
four different rulers, four different empires that will come and rule the world, try to gather the world up under one people group, these kind of successive kingdoms. As the toes of the feet, verse 42, were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. Here's the stone. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, and its interpretation sure. Okay. Now, most of the interpreters reading this text have spent most of their energy trying to figure out what these four kingdoms are, who they represent. What historical kingdoms um, do these four kind of parts represent? Some have come up with better explanations than others, okay? Uh, so, I mean, you'll get all kinds of different things happening here um, with different presidents of the United States, okay, falling in here with the iron and the clay and the feet. Um, a lot of people, again, will try to stretch this out to current day, right? So, America is often seen as this kind of fourth kingdom kind of empire. Um, so not probably the best interpretation, I don't think. We'll kind of walk through maybe the, the better way to look at it. But there have been all kinds of different ways uh, to look at this, this kind of interpretation. Now, while it might be important and helpful to figure out or try to figure out what these four kingdoms correspond to, it is useful to notice in the text, does it tell us what the second, third, and fourth kingdoms, who they, who they correspond to? No. Only the first kingdom is identified for us. So it's Nebuchadnezzar, it's Babylon. Now, the prophets are very capable of naming countries and naming future leaders and things like that. It happens in other parts of the scriptures. It doesn't happen here. Perhaps it's a little intentional. Perhaps there's, there's some, some purpose to the fact that these kingdoms aren't identified for us. And so while it might be worth our effort to try to identify them, perhaps it's not worth all of our effort. Um, perhaps there are other things that we can notice even in kind of the, the room we're given to play and to think about. Uh, one scholar mentioned, he said, I'm not sure to whom the four middles correspond, but I'm not sure it matters since I can't think of a regime to which the passage doesn't refer. Can't think of one big kind of ruling empire to which this, this wouldn't refer to. Um, notice that while the, the, the different kind of metals are different, they all belong to the same body, right? I mean, it's, there's this, also this unity to them. Um, the number four is actually a really symbolic number as well. Four often means wholeness. It represents completeness. So think of the, the four pillars of the earth, the four corners of the earth, the whole earth, okay? Or the four seasons of the year, right? I mean, this four is kind of built into our vocabulary, thinking about things as they are whole. So in, in a real sense, the statue represents all of the kingdoms of the world. I mean, it represents all of the people of the world, all of the civilizations that are built like Nebuchadnezzar's that are built to gather people together in wealth and luxury and success, but yet don't do it the way God desires, yet have this, this kind of seedy underbelly of violence and sin um, and idolatry and, and things of that uh, nature. Now, the point of the dreams, again, is not necessarily to identify all the kingdoms. The point is that they're passing, right? The point is that these kingdoms are coming to an end. And that there's a stone that's coming, and it's coming in fast, okay, like an asteroid. It's going to hit these feet, and these kingdoms are going to be done with. They're going to come to an end, and the world's going to be transformed. A new kingdom will arise, and this is God's kingdom. So this is the first point in your, your worship guide, if you're following along with us there. Uh, number one, the statue in the dream represents the kingdoms of this world 
and the victory of God's kingdom. The kingdoms of this world and the victory of God's kingdom. Now you'll notice some differences in the kingdoms. The, the kingdoms of this world represented the statue and then the, the kingdom of God. Kierkegaard, Soren Kierkegaard, would call it an infinite qualitative difference, um, which is a fancy way of saying there's big differences, right? I mean, at every level, there are big contrasting differences between the way these two things run the world. The first one to notice is the source of the kingdoms. So the source of the statue's power and rule is a human source, okay? It's their own power, it's their own might, it's their own wisdom. Um, the source of the stone, though, right, it's not cut by any human hands. It has this divine source to it. It comes with the power and endorsement and from the heart and, and activity of God himself. It's, it's God's kingdom and not man's kingdom. And, and another big difference between the two kingdoms is the time, okay? So the kingdoms of the world are coming to an end. The way that this operates, the way that these kingdoms rule the world is, has, I mean, there's a time limit on it, right? I mean, the countdown is on and it's going to end, but God's kingdom is not going to end, okay? It's infinite. It will last forever. Um, it's it's going to go on and on and on into history. Now, there are also similarities, though, okay? So both kingdoms are in history. Both kingdoms are in the world. This new kingdom, God's kingdom, is on earth. Sometimes we imagine God's kingdom is kind of spiritual or it's in heaven or something like that. Um, but notice this new kingdom doesn't destroy the earth. It doesn't build a new cosmos, a new universe, anything like that. It's a change of lordship. It's a change of who's in charge of the world. No longer Nebuchadnezzar or any ruler like him, but God himself. Not an abandoning of the world. And history itself is not destroyed, just other sovereignties are. History continues, the world continues, but now God reigns. The kingdom of God comes and establishes, it, it gains a victory over the kingdoms of this world. So this is kind of a, a story that's Im embedded in the entire scriptures, the kind of story of the stories of the scriptures. So, I mean, think back to creation. God creates the world, and it runs the way it's supposed to. There's this beautiful, peaceful joy in the early chapters of Genesis. God is the king of his creation. It's his kingdom, all of it. Then there's this rebellion, though, in Genesis 3. Sin and death enter into the world. The world fractures. It breaks. Things start crumbling to pieces. You have... Empires like Babylon, even in Genesis, start to, to, to be created. Where they rule and they run and the way they function, it's not like how God intends the world to function. It's not how God intends the world to rule. And there's always this promise in the scriptures that God will come back one day and set up his kingdom. That he'll come back decisively in history on this earth and say, let's do it my way. I'm going to take back control. I'm going to transform the world, not destroy it. Um, we're not going to get out of it. Now, there is this... There is this sense um, that these four kingdoms, okay, can be and should be maybe understood historically. Um, so there are different ways of understanding the four kingdoms. I would go with a very traditional view um, because since the text, Daniel 2, doesn't give us any indication of who these kingdoms are, the only way for us to come up with this information would be to use outside information, uh, to use outside material. I think reading the scriptures canonically, just reading through the story of the scriptures, gives us a pretty good guide. To, to, to how these kingdoms work themselves out and how the stone plays in in kind of world history. So it, it fit in with what would be called the kind of the traditional viewpoint. So if you're interested in this kind of thing, here it is. Okay, here's how you would deduce kind of and, and walk down the kingdoms. This first kingdom of gold would also be Babylon, um, represented by Nebuchadnezzar. The second kingdom would be the Medo-Persian kingdom, M-E-D-O slash Persian, the Persian kingdom. It's the, the second kingdom that comes up after um, Babylon, and really this is just a, a historical succession. It's, it's the dominoes of the empires throughout history. The third one is Greece, 
which rises up after Persia, okay? Remember Alexander the Great? Hellenization, he makes the whole world Greek. And then the fourth kingdom is the next kingdom in world history. It's Rome. This powerful Rome, okay, that crushes things under its feet. Rome comes up. Now, what some people try to do is they try to make this fourth kingdom somehow last until now. And so they, you do silly things with it, right? Like the two legs, Rome splits into two halves. You've got Eastern Rome and Western Rome, okay? And technically, America does things kind of like Rome did it legally uh, and in foreign policy and stuff like that. And so Rome kind of continues on to the day, and there's all these different parts of Rome, and it's still going. We're still waiting for the kingdom to come. I would suggest, though, that if you read the scriptures, you might find during the kingdom um, of Rome, you might find a man named Jesus coming and saying, the kingdom is here. You might find the Gospels telling the story of how God's kingdom showed up on earth and confronted and conflicted with the kingdoms of this world and called a group of people into its kingdom and out of the kingdoms of the world. I think so often we overlook the Gospels and we overlook the story that the Gospels tell. When Jesus shows up in Mark chapter 1, 14 and 15, his first big sentence in the history and that's on the stage of the world is, the kingdom is here. The kingdom is close. Repent and believe this time. The time is fulfilled. What time is he talking about? He's talking about this time. The stone has showed up. God has come here in the person of Jesus, the incarnation. God himself shows up in the stage of human history and says, I'm taking back control. I think we should read the Gospels as the stories of how God becomes king of the world. With his resurrection, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I now reign as the Lord of the universe. I have a kingdom. I establish a kingdom. I'm calling a people to come after me, to follow me, to believe in me, to worship me, to see me as their king and not the kings of this world. So the point number two here, we, we believe that God's kingdom has come in the person and work of Jesus. This past tense, I think, is important. We believe that God's kingdom has come. This is the story of the Gospels. So often, Christians sometimes push the work of Jesus all the way into the future, as if nothing really happened in the Gospels, nothing really happened about 2,000 years ago when Jesus came the first time. Right? He made it come in a spiritual way for us to go to heaven after we die. But he really didn't address the real problems of the world. He really didn't address the problem of evil and suffering and those kind of things. He didn't really address the way that the world works and its functions and, and society and, and civilization and those kind of things. And we're still waiting for all those. And, and one day maybe we'll come back and establish a kingdom. Well, this is just not a very good New Testament way to read the Bible. I mean, the Gospels are really clear about this. The kingdom has come. The kingdom's arrived. Things are happening. History is changing. The world is different. God has showed up. Now, why we might get confused is because, according to the New Testament, the kingdom is here, but it's not finished. It started like a seed that gets planted in the ground, but it's still growing. So we still see the kingdoms of this world, right? Babylon, we still see civilization ruled by sin. We still see abuse and poverty, we still see war. We still see relationships break down. We still see idolatry. We still see people not able to obey and find life in their creator. But the kingdom's here. It's a real thing. The spirit has been poured out onto his people. It's what you'd call it already, but not yet. The kingdom's arrived, but it's not fully done yet. The mountain for the Daniel 2 vision is still growing. Does that make sense? The stone comes, confronts the, the empires of the world, the kingdoms of this world. Starts a new way of living, a new way of being human, a new way of experiencing life, and is slowly but surely growing until it fills the whole the whole world. It's already, but it's not yet. Now notice when the kingdom 
of God comes, it destroys the kingdoms of this world. I want to flip with you to Psalm 137, if you would. You'll recognize uh, a bit of Psalm 137 from previous sermons in the series. But I want to read the whole thing with you, and you might be surprised by where it goes, how it ends up. Inherent to the idea that God will show up and become king again of the world, that it will start to look like what he desires it to look like, that people will start to act like he wants them to act, people will start to love like he wants them to love, people will start to forgive like he wants them to forgive, people will start to worship and obey like he wants them to worship and obey. Inherent to that idea is this idea of conflict and confrontation and the idea of the destruction of other kingdoms and other ways of life. And sometimes that, I think, jolts us a little bit. Um, and when we encounter that in the scriptures, we're kind of like, whoa, what is going on here, okay? So read with me Psalm 137. This is a beautiful kind of song, well, <laughs> until the end. Uh, it's a beautiful song about living in exile, okay? We've asked this question ourselves as we've gone through the series. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. And so you have some Jewish people sitting on the shores of Babylon, perhaps looking out toward their homeland and crying. They're in exile. They're in a lonely land. On the willows there, verse 2, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. They were making fun of them, right? Sing us the songs of your God who protects you and wins battles for you and those kind of things. Look around you, you're in Babylon. Put your instruments away. And they asked this question, verse 4, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? This is the question of Daniel, right? How are they going to remain faithful in Babylon? This is the question we face. How will we remain faithful surrounded by a world that often is not very conducive to our faithfulness? If I forget you, verse 5, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, Blessed shall be he who repays you with what you have done to us. Now look at verse 9 with me. Blessed shall be he who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rocks. You're like, wow. Well, there's that. Okay. Well, this is a, a person. So, I, want, I mean, the first thing to notice is this is a kind of raw human emotion. Okay, right? This is this kind of extreme anger and angst. Um, and, and you got to be honest with what's been expressed here, okay? The end of this kind of beautiful song, it's kind of like a song um, that gets played and, and it kind of has this melody and chorus and it, get, it ends on this kind of discordant chord, right? On this kind of awkward and, and uncomfortable ending. You're like, oh, it just ends there. Like, there's no cute wrap-up. Like, but I realized that's not the right attitude to have. I love you, God, right? That would be a nice way for the song to end. It's like a little 90s sitcom, right? You have the problem, it gets resolved, before we end, this one doesn't end like that. It just ends with, I hope their babies get thrown against rocks and get burst open. And you're like, whoa. Now, we need to deal with this. And we need to do this attitude that's throughout the scriptures. This attitude of, of waiting expectantly for Babylon to be destroyed. Whether historical Babylon or Babylon the metaphor. The civilization characterized by sin and destruction and death. I think if you and I are Christians and have been trying to follow Christ and have been trying to be obedient to him, this should kind of offend us a little bit. There should be a sense in us that says, that's maybe not the right attitude to have toward our enemies. Right? I mean, maybe it's not okay for me to be upset at someone and hope that their baby gets killed. Right? And hope that someone, and be like, blessed, happy, 
right? God is, he's with whoever takes your kid and throws him against the rocks. There should, I think it's healthy for us to look at that and go, I don't think that's for me. I don't think that's an attitude that I'm supposed to imbibe on a kind of a daily basis. But there is this sense as God's people that they look around at the world and they see how disordered it's become. And they have to call it by its true name, which is evil. And they realize that for God to come and for God to do what he's promised to do, there's going to, be, have to, have, there's going to have to be some sense of, of destruction and conflict. There's going to have to be some sense of judgment, of things no longer being allowed to be done the way that they've been done. Sometimes I think we forget that the world around us is a very disordered place. Sometimes I think we make the mistake of calling Babylon Israel. I mean, you realize, right? I mean, sometimes I think we get glimpses, we look around and we go, oh, wow, this is kind of a messed up place. But you look around and you see thousands of kids today will starve, right? I mean, not because we don't have the food, just because we're not going to give it to them. There's no way of, of getting it to them. They're going to die. Um, there's going to be equal amounts of kids today who die for very easy diseases to treat. Not because we don't have the medicine, not because it's too expensive to give, right? Just because we don't want to. There's, there's just difficulty in getting that medicine to them. Um, again, not like you don't want to, right? Like, uh, get it out of your pantries. But like big political global reasons, right? Why these systemic injustices happen in the world. Today in our country, there are people with lots and lots and lots of money. And then people without barely any money have a hard time living, hard time meeting basic needs. There are people in our city who will experience that gulf. There's war. There's oppression. Today, women continue to be taken advantage of and beat and raped, and, and, and children continue to be hurt. And every now and then, right, I mean, cancer continues to strike out of the blue. Sickness and death kind of rain over us. Every now and then we look around and we get a glimpse of it. And when you really see it for what it is, you react. And you might understand this kind of attitude. You might understand the sense of longing for this to be done with. For serious action to be taken against it. If you and I, and I've said this before, if you and I ever want to live in the world without sin, without death, and without pain, and without um, failure and frustration, those kind of things, then we desperately need God to come in and say, certain things aren't allowed. I, I'll no longer let you do these kind of things. These kind of people, these kind of things aren't allowed in my creation anymore. Judgment is a part of redemption. I mean, it's a subset of that. It's a subset of salvation. To have the world that we want, you've got to get rid of some things. And sometimes when you look around, you've got to get rid of a lot of things. I mean, you've got to have kind of a complete transformation. And this is what God has promised to do. And what as Christians, we believe he's started to do in, in Christ. The kingdom has come. It's arrived. But it's not yet fulfilled. It's not yet fulfilled. Now, this is a theme you see throughout the scriptures again. And it's kind of tough to struggle with. But this idea that God's people rejoice when Babylon falls. God's people have this kind of expectant waiting for God's kingdom to fully, fully reign on earth, for it to be the only thing that there is, for the world to function exactly the way he wants to. Flip with me one more time to Revelation chapter 11. So to the end of your scriptures, Revelation chapter 11. In Revelation 18, Babylon falls. Babylon now a metaphor for civilization enslaved by sin. And God's people rejoice. And it, you have this kind of same imagery as Psalm 37 kind of uh, disconcerting, okay? Uh, there's smoke coming up from destruction, and out of that kind of echoes of that chaos and destruction, God's people are, are blessing God. 
You're like, what's going on here? Well, what's going on here is, is Babylon. All that's wrong with the world is, is being done away with. Only God's kingdom remains, and, and there's cause for rejoicing. Um, but if you look in Revelation 11, you get this kind of picture of the kingdom consummated, okay? The kingdom fulfilled. Um, verse, we'll play in verse 15. So the seventh angel blew his trumpet. These trumpets represent kind of the, the will of God in history, okay? Um, so this is kind of the end, right? This is when the kingdom is finally here fully. And, and this is what it says. There are loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Okay, this is Daniel 2 stuff, right? The kingdoms of this world, Babylon and Persia and, and Greece and Rome, and, and really any kingdom that's not Christ, has now become Christ's kingdom. It's all Christ's kingdom. God's kingdom is here. It's consummate. It's full. It's complete. And there's reason to rejoice. They fall on their faces. They sing in verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. You see it again at the end, right? We're praising your name for destroying the destroyers, for getting rid of all that has come in corrupted creation. All that has come in and distorted the, the good thing that you have created for us. As Christians, we believe we have a unique perspective on this prophecy in Daniel 2, on this vision, this dream. In the sense that the stone has come 2,000 years ago. God himself showed up in the person of Jesus. And with his life, with his death, with his resurrection, with his ascension, the kingdom was started. And the kingdom is here now and, and available to you and I. The Spirit poured out on His people, a people called to follow Him, to worship Him only as Lord. A people to come out of Babylon and live a separate life, a life of resident aliens. The kingdom has come, but as of yet, the mountain is still growing. We exist, there's the kingdom of God, and yet there's still the kingdom of the worlds. Now these visions... These pictures for Daniel and his friends serve a very important function. So for people when they're in exile, okay, small groups of people who are posted up together in exile, much like, again, maybe you and I are right now, stories and pictures and images and actions start to become very important, like shared stories and shared pictures and shared actions and things that you can do repeatedly. They're important to remind you of what's true in the world. And it reminds you of who you belong to and reminds you of your need and call to stay faithful. Um, so you'll see this as we study throughout the book of Daniel. Daniel 7 through 12, all these different visions reinforce the behavior of Daniel and his friends in the earlier chapters. Why are they willing to die, as we'll see in, the, in Daniel chapter 3 and on? I mean, they're, just, they're very willing just to be killed. Well, because in Daniel 12, there's the vision of a resurrection. People will be raised back from the dead. Those visions fuel and motivate the actions of Daniel. And this story, this vision, this picture is one of those. And as Christians, we have the same kind of thing, right? Eucharist, the communion table. When we come and we take the bread and we dip it in the wine and the grape juice, this is one of the things we do together to recenter ourselves, to refocus ourselves, to say this is who we are. This is who we follow. This is, this is what we're called to do and to be in the world. Exiles have these, these stories. They have these pictures. They have this image, the, these images that they share. And they function very importantly for them. Um, so one of the ways that function for Daniel, and I think it should function for you and I, uh, this point number three we have here, uh, is exile should 
beware of rival eschatology, of, of any rival eschatology, okay? Big word there, okay, eschatology simply means last things, okay? So think like kind of end of the world, but don't think end of the world like the world's being blown up or being taken to heaven, right? Think of the end of the world as we know it, a regime change, right? This is Daniel 2, the world's not being destroyed, it's being transformed. There's a new owner in town, right? There's a new CEO. Think of like a post-apocalyptic movie, okay? Uh, like I Am Legend or something like that. Um, the world's still there, it's just not the world as we knew it, right? Um, I was thinking as we, we sang My Glorious in the chorus, is the world will leave. Well, at one level, that's, that's horribly incorrect, right? You and I are not planning on leaving this world. That's not the hope of the scriptures. The hope is resurrection, new heaven, new earth. At another level, it's, it's very correct. The world as we know it, we're leaving. And that should be, be great cause for praise for us. We won't always exist in this world, this world of sin and death and chaos destruction and abuse and, and poverty. Um, so eschatology is a way of seeing history. It's a way of seeing what will last. It's a way of seeing God's final decisive act in history. It's a way of seeing human progress. It's a way of seeing the goal, the end point of history. And exiles need to be aware of other tellings of history, other versions of history that would have it center around or depend on other things. And in fact, you and I actually have lots of rival eschatologies vying for our loyalty, vying for our attention. Lots of other ways of telling the story of history and telling the story of what the hope of history is, what the hope of nations are, what the hope of people is. Um, so one of the ones we've imbibed, I think all of us, just by being who we are in the time of history that we, that we live in, is the eschatology of the Enlightenment or modernity. Um, so starting in Europe around the 1800s, um, science blew up. Technology started to blow up. And people developed this way of viewing the world history um, in the sense of people before the Enlightenment. I mean, think of Enlightenment, right? I mean, they were dark. And now we're enlightened. We're smart. Um, they were dark. They were ignorant. They were confused. They were kind of stupid. They were kind of stumbling around. But now we've discovered a whole lot of stuff. We discovered what freedom meant with democracy, right? With revolutions. We've discovered how science works. We've discovered some medicine. We've discovered technology and electricity and iPhones. Praise the Lord. Okay, all these kind of... And, and the kind of the way of seeing this history, the world history here, is that a big uh, a turn, a corner is turned around this time in the 1800s. And the world is progressing. We're getting better and better and better. And what this causes us to do is it causes us to put our hope in these things. In science and medicine and technology. This is where history has turned. This is where we're being led. This is where, we're, this is where the future holds for us. And we've got to pour all of our energy and all of our trust and all of our hope into these things. Um, there's a couple things wrong with that. First of all, it's just not a very good reading historically, right? I mean, the people before 1800s were not stupid and they were not dark. In fact, a lot of the questions we ask today were asked 2,000 years ago by philosophers. I mean, almost word for word. I was thinking about something the other day. Uh, and I was asking a couple of friends about it, this question, and, and one of my friends said, hey, go read Plato, one of Plato's dialogues. He asked that same question. And I was like, oh, what? You know? Very ancient, ancient, ancient man, philosopher. He didn't have a TV. How could he think of things, right? Um, but they, they had this way of thinking about deep things and coming to, to good conclusions about certain issues in life. Um, the other issue with this is it's not, it's not the story that Christians have been given. Christians believe that history turns around Jesus. That his life, his death, his resurrection is where history turned a corner, is where God showed up, is where the kingdom started, where all of our hope is to be felt, to be placed. Not in, in science, not in medicine. So there's still to this day a very 
uh, kind of deep psychological thing within us where we think if we get the right medicine, we'll make it out of this world alive, right? Like if we make our end of life care really, 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 really that great, I won't have to die one day. I think part of being a Christian is learning how to die well. It's learning that your hope's not placed in not dying one day because they can, they can bring you back to life. Your hope's placed in God bringing you back to life, the resurrection, the new heaven and new earth. Technology, I mean, in many ways, we're trying to see technology as splintering creation in, in kind of unhealthy ways. We're being taken away from real relationships and real joy and those kind of things. But, but I mean, watch where our money goes. Watch where our energy goes. Watch what we think will make us satisfied, bring us joy, bring us peace. It's those things. It's this kind of progress that we've been able to come up with. For a Christian, history centers, again, in on Jesus 2,000 years ago, and then on his second coming when he comes back. Uh, as one scholar put it, for a Christian, in your mind, if history is a timeline in your mind, or think like a little thing of floss, okay, if the timeline goes across. For a Christian, there should be a big crater 2,000 years ago in history. There should be a big pull downward or upward. So that all of it starts to float back to that point. And your attention is constantly taken back there. And your, your perspective is constantly looking toward that. Because we're a Christian, we're focused on Christ and we're focused on his kingdom. We're focused on the life he's called us to live. We're focused on the hope that he's given us. It's not, it's not this kind of enlightenment, modernity, science, technology. That's, that's not the, the eschatology that Christians have. Um, there's equal danger in just kind of American eschatology. Uh, uh, American political eschatology on, on both sides, left and the right. Uh, you'll, you heard this in the last election by both, again, Democrats and Republicans. America's the hope of the world. Every Christian should have been able to stand up and loudly say, they're not. You're not. You're not the hope of the world. That's idolatry. That's saying something that's true about God and not true about you. America's not the hope of the world. The hope of the world is Christ. His death, his resurrection, and his second coming. And whether America exists tomorrow or doesn't exist tomorrow, the world will be fine. It'll still be in God's sovereign hands, just like it was even when Nebuchadnezzar was in control. And when we, again, when we get off track with our eschatology, with our view of history, we start to do silly things, right? I mean, we start to fight with other Christians if they don't believe our political ideology, right? As if we can't get through our right ideas about politics, the world is off track, and so it's life or death to us. And we're completely enamored by it. And that's where our attention goes. That's where our focus goes. Day to day, hour to hour, we consistently go to what are they doing in Congress? What laws are they passing? What's happening with this and what's happening with this and what's happening with this? Not with how am I worshiping Christ? How am I following him? How am I faithful to him? That's what we mean by there's a crater 2,000 years ago. I mean, no matter where we are in history, that's what we're looking at. That's what we're thinking about. That's where we're placing our hope and our expectations. And the last point I have here, number four here, is exiles need to focus. And, and these stories help us to focus. These visions help us to focus. The first one I've got, they need to focus on the center of their lives and of all of history. The kingdom, Christ. He's the center. Not of our lives only, but also of history. He's our hope. He's our Lord. He's the one we obey and we worship and we follow. In a way, I think, this metaphor, this image of a statue being broken up by a stone and being replaced by a mountain while not in the text referring to individuals, might be a way of thinking about our lives uh, and the, the need for us to be surrendered to Christ and the need for us to, to have him be our entire life, for the mountain to grow and grow and grow until our entire life is Christ, until we are 
looking and acting and thinking like Christ, where we have this close, dynamic relationship with him, with the Spirit. And oftentimes, we need to be broken down to do that, just like the statue, right? Oftentimes, we built up this kind of pride and might. We think we'll run things the way we want to run them, and we need the stone to come in and kind of crack us down and bring us down and blow us away into the kind of Spirit, um, the, the Holy Spirit's breath and his embrace and his love and his grace, where we can, we can again, let Christ be the center of our lives, um, exiles need to focus on the hope of their future. While the kingdom has come, it's definitely here. It's not finished. This should be just to be a very obvious point. Maybe there's still all kinds of, of evil around. There's still Babylon around us. But we have a hope that one day that's that's not going to be the case anymore. One day the kingdom will be finally fully realized. And we need to keep that centered on us to, to help us persevere, to help us be faithful. I don't know if, if you're like me, but, but it's easy for me to get distracted. And I don't know if you've ever felt, at least personally, like the weight of, again, Babylon, what we'll call Babylon. It's kind of this metaphor. Where, whether it's like globally, the world just looks kind of messed up to you, or even individually. Everyone in your life has failed you. Your plans for your life have failed. You're struggling, you're hurting, you're feeling lonely, you're feeling depressed, whatever it is. And you look around and you just go, I'm not sure this is going to work out. I don't know if you ever felt the weight of that. This kind of looking around and saying, I can't see how in the world these puzzle pieces are going to fit together. And the scriptures would say, they will. You don't have to see how they fit in. Daniel didn't see how it would fit in. But mysteriously, sovereignly, God is bringing creation to his intended goal. Christ will be all. Joy and peace and and shalom will fill the earth. His glory will fill the earth as as water fills the sea. We need to keep our eyes on our hope. Keep our eyes on the future ahead of us. Help us from getting distracted. Help us from from getting discouraged. And this last one, we need to keep our, our focus on the mission of our Lord. One of the perspectives, the unique perspectives we have as, as Christians on this vision is that the kingdom again has started, and you and I are called to play a role in that. I mean, what a glorious truth that you and I have this invitation to be a part of this mountain that's growing in the world. We have this invitation to stand up with Christ against evil in the world, against wrongdoing in the world. You see this in the Gospels, you see this in the book of Acts, as Paul and the other apostles go around preaching the Gospel, calling people to loyalty to King Jesus and coming up against conflict in confrontation with the kings of the world. We're called to participate, to find our place in the kingdom that, that God is establishing and building. So you have this, this statue here, you have this vision, and it's about the kingdoms of the world being replaced by the kingdom of God. And, and for an exile to live faithfully, this is one of the key truths that they've got to grasp. This is one of the things we've got to keep putting our attention back on and keep focusing on, that God's kingdom has come in the, the person and work of Christ. We're called to participate in that kingdom, to experience it, and to work for it and work in it. And as exiles, as people who live in a world that will sometimes try to tell us that the kingdom isn't here, that God isn't real, that Christ isn't real, the Spirit's not available to you, the puzzle pieces aren't going to work out, that the kingdoms of the world are all that matters, they're the ones who run things. Exiles need to continually get together, they need to continually read the scriptures, they need to continually worship and, and reframe their minds. They need to continually see the statue and see it crumble. And see a mountain grow in its place. This is one of the things we, we do here as a church when we, we come take communion. We recenter ourselves. We, we re-identify ourselves. As people who have been called by Christ. Who belong to him. 
and he'll follow him. Let's pray together.